What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze and discuss history, mythology, philosophy, and how it intersects into our popular storytelling. I am so incredibly excited to be here. I'm monumentally excited to be here. And I'm going to tell you listeners why. Over the past few weeks, after our Game of Thrones case study into Jorah Mormont, We dived deep into stories that, for the most part, focused in medieval England or or the end of the medieval early modern England. So we've been in this wheelhouse, we've been inspired by it, and we wanted to cap off this little sub-series into that with a Game of Thrones character case study. Yes, we are about a month and a half away from the premiere of season eight, And probably like you, if you're listening, we are just shaking with anticipation. We're kicking around our favorite fan theories. And we're going back and rewatching to try and pick up on things that we missed. And one of the things that Derek and I love to do the most is go back and watch the show from the vantage point of a particular character. And as we noticed with Jorah Mormont last time we did a character study, is that even though he wasn't a POV character, We got so much. It was so rich. And we learned so much about the universe through this one character. And that character became really special, at least to me. I don't know if you felt the same way. So we're going to do that again tonight with another character who seems to be somewhat on the margins of the Westerosi and SOC society. Uh, It seems to be a little bit more of a secondary character, but clearly is going to play a big part in how this story wraps up and she is still with us. So that tells you something because not many characters are. And that character is the red woman of a shy Melisandre. I just want to do a quick shout out to our friends over at the bingeable podcast. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Who suggested that we do a character case study into Melisandre. And as soon as I saw that come across Twitter and I'm like, I looked over at Laurel and I'm like, why the fuck haven't we done this and already? I was like, done. I've already done all my research, apparently. I, I know exactly what I'm going to talk about. She's so rich. It's such an interesting character to study. So thank you so much to our friends over there. Plus, we did an entire character case study on Stannis Baratheon. And if memory serves correct, that was our first Game of Thrones character case study, it wasn't it? Definitely was. I think yeah. I, I insisted on talking about Stannis first. And I was like, boo. So we know so much um, through Stannis 
because Melisandre and Stannis are very much linked in particular between um, seasons two and seasons five. So if you've listened to our other character case studies, the same rules apply. We will primarily be focusing on the television show. Um, the reason being that it's been years since I've read the books and Laurel is still working through them. Yes, I am still working through them. However, diligently. Yes. Uh, I mean, that's, that's open to interpretation, but Given that Melisandre is such a mysterious character within the show, we will have to dive into some textual analysis from the book, but we'll keep it mostly like 98% to the show and try not to spoil anything from the books if you're also working your way through them like me. I mean, I totally don't want to abide by that. I'm going to spoil whatever I want to spoil. <laughs> so spoilers for everything. The night yeah. is dark. The night is dark and full of spoilers from here on out. Absolutely. I mean, some of the best Melisandre moments are from the fifth book, Dance of Dragons. So That's I'm, true. I'm totally going to talk about them if I want to. And we're we're past that on the show. So it's all good. Exactly. Um, so let's dive into it. Let's roll up our sleeves and let's talk all things Melisandre. Um, before we begin this episode, um, we've seen, by the way, Midnight Myth listeners, thank you so much. In particular, we've been getting tons of hit ups on Twitter. It's really, really awesome. And I just, from the bottom of my heart, I've said this before, you guys are the best podcast listeners out there. So super appreciate every single one of you who has liked to tweet, retweeted it, or hit us up on Twitter. It's been really encouraging to see the amount of growth that the podcast has seen in the last couple of weeks. And it just proves that Derek and I have been toiling away at this for two years for a reason, because we're hoping that it touches you or it inspires you or it uh, spurs you on to greater conversation. And with that, you know, the conversation never begins or ends here on the Midnight Myth Podcast. We want you to join in. So if you haven't yet, make sure you hit us up on Twitter at The Midnight Myth on Facebook or on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Head over to our website, uh, www.midnightmyth.com. We're updating the blog over there as regularly as we can. And there's a lot of additional companion content that I think you'll find interesting to read. And of course, over the last couple of weeks, we premiered our sub podcast, our mini series, The Wheel of Ka which is an exploration of the Dark Tower by Stephen King, his epic fantasy series. That's with Derek and Steve, and that's going to be monthly installments. So if you are someone who is a fan of Stephen King, someone who has read the Dark Tower, or someone who has been yearning to read the Dark Tower and has been kind of intimidated by its size. Or someone who wants to reread who read it before. Exactly. This is the place to get together and discuss it. And Derek and Steve have just been killing it the first episode on The Gunslinger I thought was amazing. They brought some really good stuff to the table. So make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast, because that's where you'll also get new episodes of The Wheel of Ka. So I want to ask you something. Should we start with a sort of recap of Melisandre? We've done that in other ones. Do you think that would make sense? Yeah, I think just a high-level recap of the uh, basic arc that she's taken, the journey that she has taken throughout the show and where she is now would be helpful. I mean, she shows up as season two as a as someone that is whispering in the ear of Stannis Baratheon, who has just learned from Lord Eddock Stark that he actually is, by the laws of both gods and men, the rightful king of the Andals and the first men, due to the fact that his brother Robert Baratheon his children were not actually his. Those were the children of Cersei and Jamie Lannister, born of incest. 
She's there to convert him to the uh, religion of Rolor, the Lord of Light, a religion that um, we will talk about with at length. Absolutely. But she believes he is uh, the the end of a prophecy called Azor Azai, a prophecy that says that there will be someone who wields the sword Lightbringer to end the long night and to finally defeat darkness and bring peace to the world. And we see this right in the very beginning in season two of the show where she's burning the uh, seven idols in front of Stannis's now his royal court, which just would have been his general, like lordly court. Um, From there we see, oh my, so much happens. Uh, She sleeps and seduces Stannis and gives birth to a shadow monster who assassinates his younger brother, Renly. Who would usurp the crown from under him. Exactly. And she's accompanying Stannis on his entire journey. And, um, through it, she's advising him. Stannis does not take her when he tries to take King's Landing, something that she says, that's the reason that you failed. Ultimately, her story culminates narratively in season five, in which Stannis Baratheon is now in the north, wants to take it. He had helped the, the Night's Watch re- repel Mance, Radar, Mance Raider, pardon me, and the other wildlings from invading the south and taking the wall. And then he marches to Winterfell in which he needs the weather to change. And to do so, Melisandra has a constant refrain, which is there's magic in King's blood and that Stannis is a king. So his daughter is a king in which she proposes to burn Shireen, Stannis Baratheon's daughter, to the stake, which does melt the snow, but ends up having half of the army mutiny, Stannis's wife hanging herself and Melisandre leaving. And she's other she's instrumental instrumental part of me in other ways. She helps resurrect Jon Snow. Correct. We see her intersecting in all the major stories. But the primary bread and butter of her character is she is a main religious, magical, and strategic advisor to Stannis Baratheon and Stannis's wife. She's converted them to her religion, and her job is to convert as many Westerosians to the religion of Rolor. <clears throat> pardon me, in order to av- to avert the long night by bringing out the prophecy of the, the one king who wields Lightbringer to stop the long night from happening. And uh, in, that, in, in that end, she has done some of the most horrible, fucked up things we have seen on the entire um, seven series run. Yeah, she has burned people alive, including children. Uh, and... She, and Stannis's brother-in-law. Yeah, and she's a character who holds that sacrifice and blood sacrifice are crucial elements to saving the world. Uh, she is driven by this prophecy of Azor Ahai, or the prince who was promised, and that's what leads her to Stannis, and that's what will later lead her to attempt to serve Jon Snow and to bring Daenerys and Jon Snow together at Dragonstone. So this will serve as an internal motivation for her. And as you said, we'll talk about the religion, the faith of R'hllor a little bit, because it's impossible to understand Melisandre without understanding that particular religion. She is a character who is has more questions about her than answers, and we can only speculate as to many of the deeper truths about her. But I think the the deepest truths that we have are re- are revealed through her relationship to her God, are revealed through her relationship to her powers. And those two things are inextricably bound to one another. 
So to kickstart our conversations about her and try to understand who Melisandre is uh, on the inside, I want to start with a sentiment from the author of A Song of Ice and Fire himself, George R. R. Martin, who has called Melisandre, he's described her as his most misunderstood character. And I think that's a loaded statement. And my question to you, and a question that I think will help us to dig into who she is, is why? Why is Melisandre George R.R. R. Martin's most misunderstood character? Man, that is a that is a loaded question. So on a certain level, I think when Martin speaks publicly about the show and the books, um, a lot of the times he is responding to the dialogue happening around it. And a lot of times he's responding to fan theories. He's responding to reactions. So when he says something like Melisandre is the most misunderstood, I think we can take it on a few different layers. Um, one, I don't think that means everybody has misunderstood her up to this point. Meaning that I don't think we think she's one thing when she in fact is another. I don't think it means when we misunderstand her that we don't understand her motivations. We don't understand what drives her. I think more probably what he means is that all of the fan theories out there about her, which there are a fuck ton. There are many, a ton of fan theories about her. I think he's saying that they're wrong. The theories that you have about her are wrong. They are mis. They they are the misunderstanding because so much of the interaction between Martin and the fans has been about predicting what Game of Thrones slash Song of Ice and Fire is going to do next. In fact, predicting the outcome of Game of Thrones is its own sub industry. It's a cottage industry. Yeah, that there are our YouTube sites, podcasts, all good, which we watch and listen to on a regular basis. So I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to speak yeah, derogatory of them. Huge Reddit forums, but so granular and looking for so many Easter eggs. I think he's saying you misunderstand it. I think because Jon Snow is a Targaryen and the fans figured that out, it leads the fans to think there are other things that we can figure out too. So level one, why is she misunderstood? I think all the fan theories out there are probably wrong. Two, and I could, I also like, you know, a year from now, I could have cake on my face about this and be totally full of it. Two, Melisandre is despised. She is outright hated. Everybody hates her. And I'd like to pause and discuss and think about the hate. Because on one level, it makes sense to hate her. She's, she burns children and feels no remorse. Well, even before then, right? Yeah. Even before that, because I don't necessarily think that's true. Even before we get to the point where she kills Shireen, um, we see her burning down the idols of the seven, and we see the ripple that that has. We see her seducing the king and giving birth to a shadow monster. Yeah. We hear the musical refrain when she does something magical, which is, ominous and a little unsettling. We all know it when we, when we, she's looking into the flames and that music plays that you're like, I guess some freaky deaky evil magic's happening. Oh yeah. Season two is like heavy, heavy on the signals. We have uh, one of the few genuinely considered all around good characters, Sir Davos. Davos, 
despises her 100% of the time. So we, the audience, start to despise her. But I would like to argue that Martin is playing with something very deep. So if you've listened to our other discussions on Game of Thrones, I have a theory that major characters represent different philosophies, pardon me, or governing ideologies, which Martin is playing with. And I think Melisandre is the exception that proves the rule because he's not necessarily playing with an ideology such as Daenerys being secular humanism or Littlefinger and Cersei being Machiavellianism. I think he's playing with something else. And to do so, we're going to have to go back to Rome. Oh my God. Are we going to ancient Rome on the midnight myth? Yeah. Derek's talking about Rome again. I can't believe it. Shocker. So I'd like to bring our attention to a historical figure I think most people listening to this podcast have heard of named Cleopatra. The history of Cleopatra is a very huge subject, one which could fill both uh, tombs of history books as well as podcasts. But the reason I bring up Cleopatra to Melisandre, and I'm not going to do justice to the history of Cleopatra in this podcast is that Cleopatra is largely described as a sorceress. She's described as a woman who used her sexual prowess, her connection to a foreign Egyptian religion to seduce people like Caesar and Mark Anthony, corrupt their reason, corrupt their senses, and have them aspire to a throne that wasn't really theirs. That's so interesting. Can I ask you a question about that? Was that in her time or was this only in like historical hindsight that she was referred to this way? Fantastic. Fantastic question. So it was after her downfall. Okay. In particular, there is a Roman historian by the name of Livy. Livy um, wrote history under the first Roman emperor named a man by the name of Caesar Augustus. And he wrote the history of Rome starting from its foundation to the rise of Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus gave him his blessing to do this. Caesar Augustus became the first Roman emperor after he defeated Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. So the, the Livy who became one of the definitive sources described her as such, but even before there was the written history the narrative around Cleopatra is look at what she has done to these great Roman men. Right, yeah. And how she has foreignized and Egyptianized them. So she was this seductress using foreign gods and foreign magic to tempt these great Roman men to become less Roman, and that was their downfall. This is a basis of, of tragic storytelling ever since. Is Shakespeare, for example, has used this in Macbeth with Lady Macbeth and the witches, and we see this, and we talk about this at length in the Stannis episode that we did way long ago. What Martin is playing with in a, I'd say, a macro level, not a micro level, is the Cleopatra, because Martin knows this. And Martin knows that contemporary modern historiography around Cleopatra challenges the notion that the way Livy described her was accurate. Lots of big fancy words. In other words, people are calling bullshit. People are saying, you know what? The reason Romans hated Cleopatra was that A, she was smart, B, she was hot, and C, 
She was successful. Yeah, a successful woman in power, which is the scariest thing any man can think of. In particular to the ancient Romans. Ancient Rome is a fiercely patriarchal society. So a woman aspiring to rule more than what she should rule, to corrupt the senses of men and get them to do battle on her behalf, is the most perverse um um, way for the, uh, the most perverse natural uh, a perversion, pardon me, of yeah. the natural state. Yeah. So what does all this mean in terms of understanding Melisandre? Martin is taking that trope literal, and it's unique for Martin because Martin takes no tropes literal. Martin upends the tropes and redefines them. Yet, in the case of Melisandre, she is in fact a sorceress. She does, in fact, whisper to the ears of kings. She does also use magic to coerce natural events and get people on her side. She is, in my view, the actual Cleopatra ripped from the pages of Livy and pro-Augustian propaganda made manifest. And I think that's part and parcel of why she's misunderstood, because she's one of the few characters who in many ways conforms to the archetype rather than upends it. I think that's really interesting because as you say, so many of the characters, uh, you know, I'm thinking especially of the woman characters in Game of Thrones like Cersei or like Sansa or Daenerys are uh, playing with the perpendicularity to their particular tropes. We see them interacting with how the world perceives them and showing us a different side. And Melisandre, in a deeply self-conscious way, as, as the character, I think the character is very self-conscious about what her legacy will be, about how she will be written about by the historians as the snake whispering in Adam's ear. She'll be written about as this temptress, as this siren, uh, as a manipulator, as a charlatan, and because she's aware of that, is able to lean in, is able to uh, sort of expose weaknesses in others because of it. Uh, and I think once we have that big reveal of her quote-unquote true form, when we see her in season six as a decrepit old woman, I think it it hits home even more because there's an exhibitionist quality about her body. She's so willing to show off her naked body. She's so willing to uh, lean into that seductress trope that she's very actively and self-consciously playing with how she will be remembered or how she will be perceived by others. Does that make sense? Well, which is another way to say that Martin is taking that trope very seriously in the way he has written this character, yeah. and then the show in the way that they have adapted it from the books. I totally agree because she is completely content in seeing Jon Snow and taking off her clothes and being like, hey, you need to bone me here in the Night's Watch. you know. And she is one of the, the, the few characters at her level in her position that is so openly and transparently what their stereotype is. Yeah, um, it, it, it sort of serves to drive home the, I'm, I'm not going to call Melisandre a feminist, but when I think about contemporary feminism and how it's based in, you know, a, a woman can be 
uh, can not wear a bra and never shave her legs and uh, be an academic and be a feminist, or she can uh, dye her hair blonde and wear tons of makeup and put her body on display and still be a feminist, and how there's a, a, a huge spectrum of what that looks like, and a woman can't be condemned for either one in contemporary feminism. I don't know if that's like taking it too far, but that recognition of like me leaning into this uh, consciousness of, of my body, me leaning, me leaning into this consciousness of my sexuality is in no way demeaning to myself. Well, to answer your question, because I'm not sure about that, I honestly don't know, but why is she misunderstood? The fact that we've seen Melisandre up to this point conform to the tropes tells me if we're peeling, uh, you know, behind the curtain that at some point she's not going to conform to those tropes. Right. And I think we can see that in the transition from zealous, um, who completely 100% faith driven knows the answer to the prophecy. If Stannis isn't the king, the world will end. So everything and anything we do to get Stannis to be king is okay because we're trying to stop the world from ending to fuck, I was wrong. Right. And we've seen that transition from season five to season six where what now? What now? And there's a line that she has. I believe it's in season seven. I'm, I'm blanking on exactly where she says, I'm done whispering in the ears of kings. Where she realizes that whatever part she has to play in this drama, in this in this quest to bring light to the to the land of Westeros to stop the Long Night, that she's no longer going to be a power player. In other words, she's giving up the actual Game of Thrones and actually trying to go out there and help make this prophecy come to fruition. Uh, yeah, I think that's really interesting, and that intersects with that question of why is she misunderstood? And, you know, when you first hear that, it it seems to connote, like, this character deserves more empathy than you're giving her. But I think what Martin may be trying to say to us is that it's not about, uh, you know, having sympathy for her. It's not about recognizing her past trauma or recognizing the uh, sincerity of her motives. It's about uh, realizing that we've been wrong about the role she has to play within this universe. And I think that the role she has to play in A Song of Ice and Fire, the role she has to play in Game of Thrones, is going to be crucial. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I think it's going to be crucial. So since you brought up Cleopatra and the sorceress archetype, I want to pivot slightly into this kind of deep dive into Melisandre, if that is okay with you. Um, of course. And that is to look at the connotations within her name. Now, I've talked about the significance of naming uh, of George R. R. Martin's characters before with Cersei and on the blog with Jon Snow, and it's undoubted that this is a man who crafts all of his details very purposely and very intentionally, and so naming her Melisandre is not something he made up out of nowhere. And so I want to draw attention to a couple of things. One of those is that the root of Melisandre and the uh, root of Melanie, which we are led to believe within a flashback from A Dance of Dragons, is her given name when she was sold into slavery as a child. Uh, both of these share a root with the Greek word 
melas, which means dark or black. And I think there's a, a deep significance to the fact that we have darkness or blackness as the root of a character whose entire internal motivation is to bring about and defend the light. And someone who in, adheres to an inherently dualistic worldview that says an onion that is half black with rot is a rotten onion. A man is good or he is evil. Uh, so I think that that tells us a lot about the sort of shades of gray that this character is unwilling to confront within herself. Interesting. I really, I'm, I'm really into that. Now, the other thing I want to bring up with her name is its resemblance to a name of a character from French mythology, and that's going to be Melusina. Uh, this character is also adapted into a, a, an opera about Peleus and Melisande, so it's going to look a little bit more like Melisandre as it's adapted later. But this is a super fascinating uh, fairy myth from France that also incorporates that dual nature and that sorceress complex or that sort of association with the temptress or seductress. Now, Melusine is the daughter of a fairy. This is compiled in its definitive literary version by Jean Darat in the 14th century. She's raised in Avalon, so it intersects a little bit with the Arthurian legend. And she marries a mortal man named Raymond. Now, what he doesn't know about her is that every Saturday, her lower half below her waist turns into the tail of a serpent or a two-tailed mermaid. And she marries him on the condition that he will never look into her bathroom on a Saturday. Of course, he violates this taboo. He sees that she actually has a serpent's tail. And they try to move past it. She tries to you know, forgive him for what he's done. And then in public, as they're having an argument in front of his court, he calls her a serpent. Then Melusine turns into a winged dragon and flies away. So it's an interesting story loaded with these uh, symbols of mermaids, of sirens, of seductresses, of snakes, of dragons, things that really intersect with Game of Thrones in an interesting way. But I introduce her not just because we get that uh, symbolism or that similarity of names, but because that season six whammy of discovering Melisandre's true form as this ancient woman who's been glamoring herself to appear young and beautiful seems to correspond to that type of narrative. It's going to be something that you've seen before in Selkies, seal women who uh, transform after their pelt has been stolen, or the crane wife, or even derivatives of the Beauty and the Beast tale. This taboo and this violation of trust between uh, a husband and a supernatural wife, or vice versa. I think there's something uh, that's key to Melisandre in that correspondence to mythology, that there is a hidden nature within her that she is unwilling to expose to others because the veneer of the young and beautiful woman, like we have been talking about, is powerful. It has power over people. Uh, and so I, I think it's interesting to draw those connections between not just her name, but her her dualistic nature to uh, to that myth. I think pivoting into that 
you know, one thing I would like to discuss, Melisandre is defined by her faith and by her magic. Yes. Those are the two most important characteristics. So we can understand that her appearance is magical. We have had hints of it in the books. It's confirmed in the show that when she removes that red ruby, she appears very, very old. Right. That she's, in fact, a very old person masquerading via magical powers as young. You called it the veneer of youth. That veneer of youth, is it a lie? That is a great question because Melisandre actually has a great quote about lies. And let me quickly find it for you. When she's in the bath speaking to Solis Baratheon, she says, most of these powders and potions are lies, deceptions to make men think they witnessed our Lord's power. Once they step into his light, they'll see the lie for what it was, a trick that led them to the truth. I think this is so central to Melisandre because it's adjacent to that charlatan or sorceress archetype that that we have been hoping for her to subvert, but she's still kind of leaning into. Uh, But it's really got this larger implication for how she sees the world, that sacrifice is necessary to get to great gifts, that uh, sometimes to save the world you have to do bad things or what other people would see as bad things. I think that that is something that motivates every action that she uh, that she does. So I think it might be helpful if we briefly flesh out her religion and its yeah. its basic theological premises. Um, granted, there's a ton of literature out there online, so please, friends, go ahead and Google it. But this is going to be very quick and very surface level. She practices the religion of Rolor. Rolor comes from the land of Ashai, which is western, eastern, pardon me, more east than any other place that we've seen. It may be so east it's not on the Essos continent. It might be on a whole other continent or might be a part of the Essos continent. No one knows because if you Google where is Ashai on the Game of Thrones slash Song of Ice and Fire map, no one knows because it's never been placed And anywhere. I just did the 4D puzzle of Westeros and Essos. So and you know. I, I haven't seen it. Don't know where it is. The main area in which the priesthood has flown through is the city called Volantis. In Volantis, there is a main temple to Rolor in which they purchase slaves, and the slaves will have three different functions. Some will become priests or priestesses, some will become prostitutes, and some will become warriors to defend the, the temple. The priests and priestesses will often go out to proselytize and convert people to the religion. The religion's basic theological tenements is that there is one god, Rolor, and one contrary god whose name cannot be spoken, who is just the great other. The great other, which in the books, the White Walkers are called the others, and they are supposed to be reminiscent of the great other. But the idea is that there is a god of light and there's a god of darkness. Light is made through the sun, it's made through fire, and uh, in Looking through the flames, you can communicate and get prophecies to the god of Rolor. These prophecies takes time, it takes training, but you can learn to see them. There are hints that Melisandre is the best interpreter of the flames in the entire religion. In her order, at least. Yes. Yeah. Um, And we have seen through Melisandre that 
practicing the faith of Rolor leaves the priests and priestesses to have legitimate magical powers. We've also seen Thoros of Mir resurrect Benedict Odarian on at least six occasions. Um, so this religion in the far east of this world has been slowly spreading and making its way west. And there is a prophecy that before the end of the world, there will be Azura Zai, who was the original messianic figure, savior, wielded a sword called Lightbringer to stop the long night before, will be resurrected and will return and will stop the long night from happening again. I'm glad we fleshed that out. I think most of us listening to this podcast probably know most of it. I'd like to submit a theory on how I interpret this religion and its role in the world. Would you be would you permit me to flesh this out? Absolutely. I think the Lord of Light is the stand-in for Christianity in this world. And no to a lot of you would pause and say, "No, Derek, I know a little bit about medieval history and I know a little bit about theology and the the, the light of the seven is the stand-in for Christianity. And in many functional ways, you're right, people that are pausing. The world of Westeros is based off of medieval England. The religion which is integrated into the faith is the faith of the seven. The faith of the seven, where they worship, the place is called septums. They look like medieval Gothic-esque cathedrals. The priest and priestesses um, that we see, the sept and septums, they also look like medieval priests or uh, you know medieval nuns. And the seven aspects of the deity or the seven deities correspond somewhat to the Christian uh, holy trinity in ways. Well, and also the number seven is very important exactly. in, in, in Christianity. It pops up all over the Bible. And in all of these ways, yes, the, the, the faith of the seven is also a stand-in for Christianity. But I'd like to pose a counter-argument. Nothing about the actual faith as we know it resembles Christianity. There are seven deities in the faith of the seven. Those seven deities, um, some argue, are the manifestation of one deity, but that's by no means a settled theological argument. So it is a polytheistic religion. There's no demon or Satan in this. In fact, the thing closest to it would be the stranger— However, the stranger is not the, this demon that's seeking to steal souls. Yeah, it's, it's more a very like, neutral figure. It's more like Hades yeah, or a in ancient Greece, which is just like that's death and death exists. It's part of this, but it's not in and of itself an evil or bad thing. You just don't pray to death because it's better to be alive. Yeah. Whereas we see in the Lord of Light, we see it as a monotheistic in that there is one God, we see them describe the other gods not as non-existent, but as demons, something that Christianity did in the late Roman Empire, early Middle Ages. They didn't argue that paganism was wrong. They, or, they argued that the pagan gods were themselves demons. To kind of ease the transition for pagans who were holding on. Which we've talked about in other episodes. Um, there is a god and a Satan figure in the Lord of Light, Locked in an eternal struggle between good and evil. Which is central to late Roman, early medieval Christian theology is that God and the and the devil are in battle over the souls of people on the planet, exactly like the Lord of Light. There is a messianic figure 
who was there to save people who will be resurrected again right before Armageddon, exactly the way it is in Christianity. Not exactly, but similar to the way it is in Christianity. And uh, furthermore, there is purification of the heretics via fire, which was the common form of execution in, you know, ancient Christianity and medieval Christianity. When a heretic was found and discovered, they burned them at the stake. There's also a belief that the afterlife is more important, if not as is mostly more important than your current life. That's a good point. There isn't an emphasis on being happy now, but working towards getting to the end, the end being the afterlife as the the end being the end of your life on the planet and the transition to the next life, the real life, the life where you can be happy, which is where you are immortal and you are in the graces of, of the Lord of light. So I feel like, if we read, oh, another parallel, pardon me. Christianity came from the east of the ancient world yeah. and migrated west. It came from the outs- like the end of the Roman Empire and then slowly made its way, much as that this religion's start is so far east, no one knows where it is and has been slowly making its way west. Another reason I would say Martin describes Melisandre as the most misunderstood character is that I think at the end of this, when the long night is done, the seven are going to fall and the Lord of light will be the dominant religion in Westeros. And that's a massive prediction, but I, I can't really argue it because we can see everything culminating to the final battle between the forces of of light, the forces of Danny and John and everyone who would fight for the world versus the others versus the white walkers and ice and snow and forever winter. And if this prophecy of Azor Ahai, the, uh, you know, hero who saved us from the long night thousands of years ago is to be interpreted in any way, or even, uh, motivates our characters to pursue, Uh, you know, a sacrifice for all of mankind, it would lead us at the end of that to reevaluate who was on our side. And we have seen demonstrations multiple times throughout the series of the power that R'hllor and his followers actually have. So I think there is a compelling case to be made that that could be what's happening, that this could be the story of how, how a zeitgeist swept Essos and Westeros. So ask yourself a question, Midnight Myth listeners, and I'll pose it to you too, Laurel. If you saw someone actually do a miracle, if you saw it and knew 100% that you had witnessed an actual real miracle, would you not follow that person? And if summarily that person told you to kill, would you not kill? We know that humans in our, in our life have done so having not witnessed miracles. They have followed people and followed them to kill. Imagine if you actually saw them do the miracles they said they can do. Right. That's Melisandre. So Melisandre can, can actually go out and make the miracles happen. She literally has magical powers. And that validates her faith and inspires those around her 
to then do whatever she bids because she professes to speak for God. And that is a very powerful message, a message that is still powerful to date. There are people following those who say they do miracles and say they do the the will of God and that they can speak to God. And often those that are following the person who says they can speak God and do the will of God end up doing terrible, horrible things. Right. Melisandre is Martin playing with the orthodoxy and the fanatics. He gives validation, material validation, in that Melisandre can do miracles and does have magic. But at the same time, we see the horrible consequences when someone says, I know the will of God, act in the way that I say, or you will defy God. And when Melisandre gets it wrong, and she knows she got it wrong, the cost is so fucking high. Yeah. Yeah, I I think Martin, I mean, Martin can't make anything easy for us, obviously. And that's why we love him, and that's why we hate him at the same time. Um, That we have a character here who... uh, We've got the ominous music playing. We have all of the character tropes of the seductress, of the sorceress. And we have her absolutely confirming all of those tropes, which we could perceive as damaging or we could perceive as shallow. But then we complicate it, of course, because we know that this character over time reveals to us that she doesn't have self-interest. You know, she absolutely sincerely believes that she is doing the right thing and is doing the bidding of good and that she is bringing about the saving of the world. And while that still can't absolve uh, some of the atrocities that she carries out, just like, you know, a belief in God can't absolve the crusades or can't absolve ethnic cleansing or can't absolve you know, Thanos wiping out half the universe, uh, it's still a complication. And Martin gives us, again, these shades of gray in this character that are just so frustrating. And in a character with so much mystery, it's even more frustrating, I think. Um, Martin has has paraphrased William Faulkner a few times, who, who said that the greatest thing we can do as writers uh, in his Nobel speech uh, is to portray the human heart in conflict with itself. And I think Melisandre is a character whose heart is in conflict with itself, and yet she can't confront that right away. It takes us several seasons for her to actually allow herself to feel that conflict, and that's when she starts to kind of crack open for us, when we see her faith shaken, when we see her rocked to her core. Because fanaticism is, if there is an ideology that Martin's playing with in Melisandre, it is fanaticism. And fanaticism ultimately leads you to one place. It leads you alone in the mud and dying, I think is the the moral that we're getting from Melisandre. That's where Stannis ends up. And when you justify your faith and say, because I'm doing X, Y, and Z for my faith, with the blessing of my faith, by my faith, I can do whatever I want. You've created a moral permission structure that is so fucking fucked up that it yeah. involves, <laughs> you know, 
putting leeches on a, you know, a boy on a to teenager, like, yeah. on a teenage boy that you've been seducing. It involves uh, burning a young girl alive. It involves uh, using your magical powers to assassinate your king's younger brother. It involves doing all of these horrible, terrible, insidious things. Resurrecting someone without his consent? Come on. That's such a violation <laughs> How dare of she? death privacy. Yeah, yeah. And so she's not on the most, uh, you know, typical redemption arc as, you know, a character like Jamie or even Jorah would be on uh, within the series. But I, I think we're starting to see kind of layers uh, expose themselves within her as she starts to confront the doubts that she has. And that shows us a more human side of her, uh, you know, as hard as it is to, to even want to see that. The fanatics powers are real. Their God is real, but the fanatic is still totally wrong and fucked up. And that is a weird paradigm. You know, you have Martin playing with the long historical archetype of the temptress, of the seductress, of the sorceress woman, whispering in the ears of kings to corrupt them and lead to their doom, coupled with religious fanaticism, coupled with a play on early Christian theological thinking and practices, in particular their late Roman, early medieval period. And then you get this beautiful, weird, complex, and barbaric character named Melisandre. Yeah. Um, Another thing I think that strikes me as really interesting in trying to understand her is how she stands in contrast and in comparison to uh, the other women on the show. Do it. Um, And, you know, we've touched on this a little bit with her being the exception who actually leans into her stereotype rather than subvert it. But I want to just draw a couple of comparisons between her and others. And we did an in-depth, you know, episode on Cersei. uh, And I think both of them do carry these uh, major comparisons to Lady Macbeth as their sort of literary antecedents. Cersei as the ambitious woman who is in it for herself and, um, and Melisandre as the sort of side of uh, Lady Macbeth who is whispering in the man's ear to have him ascend to the kingship by any means necessary. Um, the difference obviously being that Melisandre doesn't really have personal ambitions. She just has ambitions to serve um, I also think she bears a lot of similarities. Oh, hold on, hold on. I, I just want to pause you there. Yeah. Pause there, if you don't mind, that she doesn't have personal ambitions. I, I, uh, I, I, mean, I mean, I just mean she's not, she's not particularly self-interested, right? She's not someone who is, like, jockeying for glory or power. I don't know if I agree. In particular, in early... Well, I'm willing to have this discussion because everything that she does is in the service of her God. However, you can't tell me she doesn't enjoy being at Stannis's side. Yeah, that's true. You know, you can't tell me that she doesn't enjoy the power because you really get the sense in both the books and the TV show that she does enjoy it, that she does yeah. that she does personally gain. And assuming let's say she was right about Stannis and he defeats the Long Night, as Stannis is now the king, she gets the ability to say, "I just converted all of Westeros to my religion." Yeah. Like, so I do feel like she does have some personal stakes in it. It's not just to serve. I mean, that's probably true. I, I just, I, I see those as 
that's definitely secondary or tertiary for her character. I think she really is out to do for the greater good. Um, I, it, but I think that's, that's dangerous too, because the greater good is making sure she wants everyone to be in her religion. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. I, I think the greater good is about stopping the long night, at least in her perception. But those things are not in, those things are combined to her. They're not, you can't yeah. separate those out. It's not stop the long night without the world following the, the same God. The world will follow the same God and we stop the long night. Okay. I mean, yeah, that's fair. Okay. Um, Sorry. Moving on, she serves as kind of a dark mirror for Daenerys in that obviously they're both associated with fire in different ways. Um, they're both associated with prophecy and a sort of mythic otherworldly quality. Uh, they both have this long journey from Westeros to Essos, east to west and back again and back again. Um, and we have the mother of dragons versus the mother of shadow demons. And while Danny is sort of impervious to fire, Melisandre appears to be impervious to cold. So we have her as this stark contrast to that character. She's even got reminiscence of Arya in that they can both change their face and she ends up on Arya's kill list after she kind of sees herself in Arya. And that's going to lead me to my sort of final point here uh, by way of kind of a prediction. And that's that in the last moments that we saw Melisandre in season seven, she was sharing a conversation with Varys that was deeply intimate and she said something kind of troubling and mysterious, as she always does, which is, uh, I, you know, I'll make this journey one last time. I have to die in this strange country just like you. And I've always wondered what that meant. And I think there's a few ways we can interpret it. One being that she saw her death in Arya's eyes back in season two and knows she has to die at the hand of that faceless assassin. Oh, yeah. Or that... She knows she has to be the one to commit the ultimate sacrifice to stop the long night. And that's the sacrifice of Azora High's wife, Nissa Nissa, the self-sacrifice. And I think that would be a tremendous culmination for her being a misunderstood character, a tremendous culmination for his enti her entire arc, where after sacrificing so many other people, before her, after letting the blood of so many innocents, the biggest sacrifice that she could make for the greatest gift is to sacrifice herself. And while I can't say whether this will happen, I think it would be an excellent way to round out her arc and prove to us that she is, after all, misunderstood. Wow. Well, there's so much to say about Melisandre I feel that we have barely scratched the surface. I know, right? We haven't talked about the immense detailed fan theories that are out there about her origins. Right. Um, the, there's so much more to say about her prophecies. And I think so much more to say about, like, we didn't even very, we didn't get even granular about what she has done. Yeah. And what those, what those things have meant. But I do feel like we had a very great conversation and I'm interested midnight myth listeners. If you want a little more of Melisandre, cause there's more there, let us know we can dive further and deeper, but, um, Valor Magalas. Valor And until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind.
heard of her. So Rome is a patriotic patriot. I love it. Every time you flub, you have to make it a song with blah 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 sounds. 